You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, it's good to be with you all again, and uh, thank you for having me back. Um, we, about a month ago, I guess now, began uh, a sequence of evening studies in 2 Corinthians. And uh, so if you weren't here last time, you only missed the first three verses, uh, first two verses, sorry. Uh, our pace will pick up, um, you'll be glad to hear. So this evening we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through to 11, and uh, we'll read from 1 to 11, uh, just to take in uh, Paul's greetings again, and uh, then we'll pray. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, not ours. And uh, we confess before you that uh, before the depths of your heart and mind, we are as thick as two short planks. And we are amazingly able to get it wrong. Or to understand the words, but not take them in and receive them. And so we know that to understand spiritual truths expressed in spiritual words, we need your spirit. 
So we pray, come Holy Ghost and teach us from your book. We ask that your word would penetrate our hearts. We pray that we might be nourished by it for the week ahead. But we pray even more that we might see something of your glory which is beyond measure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in this second letter because um, he has been facing opposition and the work that he has done in Corinth has faced opposition. Uh, it faced opposition within the fellowship um, who, uh, just being human beings uh, like the rest of us, immediately began to fall out. And so even in 1 Corinthians, we have Paul referring to the factions that were growing up within the church there. Um, so there were kind of internal problems which threatened the long-term fruitfulness of the gospel that Paul had preached there in, uh, in Corinth and threatened the long-term fruitfulness of uh, the fellowship as it not only influenced Corinth but had the opportunity to, to share in God's work throughout the whole province of Achaia. But there was also a kind of external um, problem came in after Paul um, and that was to do with uh, the Judaizers um, and probably others as well who came into Corinth um, and they were <clears throat> very skilled in oratory. Uh, they were very highly paid, so they were reassuringly expensive, um, like Stella Artois that I mentioned last time I was here and that um, uh, allusion resonated with a surprising number of you. Um, and they essentially hoodwinked um, many in the congregation in Corinth uh, into believing that, that the gospel that Paul and his companions had been preaching wasn't really enough. Um, that you, you needed the grace of God, of course you needed the grace of God, you needed God's mercy, of course, but it was up to you to put yourself in a position to receive that. And uh, the, the whole Judaizing um, influence that came in in church after church after church was subtle in that it allowed you to go on believing in something called the gospel. It allowed you to go on using words like grace and mercy. But it actually robbed them of their force and their power and robbed them of their comfort and their, their, their blessing because you had to put yourself, uh, by observing Jewish regulations and rituals, into a position where you would receive those things. Those things were only for those who were part of um, the covenant community and you put yourself into the covenant community and then you could receive something called grace. So you ended up with that oxymoron of having to earn grace. And this is the problem that, that um, was particularly uh, strong, of course, in, in Galatia, um, where Paul calls it no gospel at all this new gospel that had bewitched the Galatians. Well, the Corinthians, um, prone to falling out amongst one another, prone to the kind of worldliness um, of Corinth, um, and prone to this uh, false gospel, um, had, in the process of hearing the, the, the false gospel, been turned against Paul. Uh, the, the strategy was simple. If you can discredit Paul himself, then you can discredit the gospel that he taught. And if you look good, 
and you, you've, you know, you're, you're one of kind of visiting speakers. Um, I could be careful what I was there because I'm a visiting speaker. Um, you know, with, with sort of gold teeth and high flute and hairdos and all the rest of it and that sort of ring of confidence or something like that. Then, and you're there and Paul's gone. Then you can very easily discredit him and look good yourself and just subtly slip in your gospel. So Paul has been revisiting and rewriting uh, with the church in Corinth to bring them back to the gospel. And he does so by defending himself. Now he's not defending himself because he's precious about himself, because his ego is his God. He's defending himself because he was preaching the gospel with the companions and he wants them to understand that the way he was amongst them was itself controlled by the gospel. And he launches straight into it. So in our passage this evening, um, Paul talks about comfort received because comfort was needed. And comfort was needed because the life of the apostle and his companions was a life not of um, worldly success and splendor and glitz and bling or spiritualized bling or whatever. Um, It was a life of suffering. And that is inherent in a life that is lived according to the gospel. It is not alien to it, like an unfortunate add-on that you get. It's actually inherent within it. Because it is part and parcel of being in Christ to have, as Paul puts it in this um, opening section in verse 5, to have the sufferings of Christ overflowing to your life. It's part and parcel of being united with Christ that you are not only united with him in his death and in his resurrection, you not only receive his righteousness as he took your sin, but you then begin to live a Christ-like life. So just to get our heads around the, 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 the way that what Paul is writing about here is absolutely core in the Christian's experience, Afflictions, sufferings, distresses, hard times, difficulties, trials. Um, We just remind ourselves to get this into our heads that that Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then what what have you got to do? What is it going to involve? It's going to involve you denying yourself and taking up uh, not your your Lamborghini. Um, Oh, that would be nice. Uh, for taking up your cross and following him daily, normal, like eating. Jesus said, uh, if you want to follow me, you've got to lose your life for my sake and the gospel. So you see, what, what Paul is, has been living as well as teaching, is that in one sense, the essential message of the gospel, the essential invitation of the gospel, is come and die. Come and die. Not just die to sin and self, but die to this world and all that it offers you by way of comfort, success, everything else. Because you're not made for this world. And if you're in Christ, you don't really belong to this world. You're in it, but you're not of it. 
And so uh, Jesus teaches his disciples, John 15 and 16, that they will get what he got. If the world hates me, he says, then it will hate you. So what Paul is writing about here is normal Christianity. Um, Let's just think about the words for a moment or two before we sort of uh, take a look through um, what Paul is writing in a bit more detail. Um, There are two key words. The first is um, comfort. And the second is affliction or or troubles as we have. Um, Comfort is uh, a particularly strong and helpful word uh, for us to understand and and just to to sort of take in. Um, we, We have a soft version of comfort. Um, our soft version of comfort is something like what we mean by sympathy when we, when we you know, put a sympathetic arm around somebody's shoulder or we send them a sympathy card um, or you know, we just sympathize with them and say, basically we're saying, ah, oh, they're there. You know, yes, they are beastly. And what a horrible bloke to dump you like that. Ha, let's go and tear him to shreds or whatever. You know, we just, we just sort of sympathize with somebody and we offer them some nice words and comforting words and we think, we think that's comfort. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. This isn't a sort of a there, there, pat on the shoulder, sob on, 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 on the shoulder or whatever. It's far stronger than that. Uh, the word paraklesis in the Greek um, means you come alongside somebody to give them strength. So you give them your strength by getting alongside them when they're about to fall over and you put your arm around them, but not to say they're there, not to say, oh, it's terrible you're falling over, (laughs) down they go, but actually to hold them up. Uh, So David and I are going to demonstrate this to you. David didn't know that this was going to happen. Frankly, neither did I. But I think, so David's going to come up here. And um, now you've got to imagine that David is weak and just... He's just about to fall over. And you've got to imagine that I'm strong. And David's about... It's the wrong way around because he's bigger than me. Um, uh, so you're about to fall... You're about, your knees are about to collapse. Okay, go. It's okay, David. You know. <laughs> Here, off we go. And so David now stands up strengthened with my strength. There you are, you see. That's what it looks like. Good. Um, <laughs> that was so slick. Uh, comfort, our English word comfort is exactly the right way to translate the Greek word paraklesis it means to be with somebody in order to give them fortitude, strength so you actually put metal into somebody you help them to keep going you don't reinforce their self-pity you don't affirm their self-absorption. You don't turn with them against everybody who's beastly and turn them into somebody just totally absorbed by their own victimhood. You actually put metal into somebody. So you can comfort somebody by standing behind them and saying, keep going, keep going, go on, don't stop, don't stop. So this is somebody who is an athlete Running, they're just about at the end of themselves. Throwing up at the trackside would be mild compared to how they actually feel. And the coach is running alongside, or cycling, 
and yelling at them, keep going, keep going. The finishing line is there, don't stop. And when the athlete gets across the finishing line, he is glad that the coach didn't do our version of comfort, which is, oh, there, there, just just stop, have a a wee rest. (laughs) Miserable, isn't it? Awful, this running business. See, it puts metal into somebody. That's what paraclesis is about. God comes alongside you. Puts his arms around you. And gives you his strength when you have none. So, you see, the prerequisite of knowing God in this sense is that you know that you're finished. You know you're finished. You know that you do not have what it takes to face the day. If you think you're strong, you'll never know God this way. If you think you don't need someone, if you think it is a weakness to need God in this sense, if the answer to the question every time someone asks you how you are is fine, fine, I really encourage <laughs> coping, great. And you just keep saying that and you're telling yourself that. Then you'll never know God in the way that Paul knew God. And in the way that he wanted the Corinthians to know God. And you'll never know God in the way that Jesus knew the Father and experienced the Father. Because it is the sufferings of Christ that have overflowed into his life. And so it is through Christ, who knew the Father, that the comfort overflows. So comfort paraclesis, it is, it is when God just draws alongside you and he holds you up, he keeps you going. He doesn't turn you into a self-absorbed, self-preoccupied, self-pitying victim. He stands you up again. And the other word is is affliction or flipsis. Uh, Trouble, if you have the NIV in verse 4. And uh, it is uh, also uh, sufferings that we have uh, in the passage in verse uh, 6. And seven and five. Um, the, the word flipsis literally means to be caught between a rock and a hard place. That's affliction. That's suffering. That's troubles. You're caught between a rock and a hard place. And when you're caught between a rock and a hard place, what's that like? It means you don't know what to do next. You cannot see a way forward. You have no plan. Wherever you look, it's pressure. It is pressing in on you. In fact, um, you'd uh, see how Paul later on in the second section, 8 through 11, talks about being under great pressure. Um, it's very interesting that we, uh, that we read from Job uh, with a reference to the, uh, the amethyst and the gold, uh, how is amethyst formed, uh, igneous rock. Um, it's a crystalline thing, isn't it? A crystal there. And uh, so rock has been melted. How do you melt rock? Well, you don't just apply a lot of heat. You have to do it under pressure. 
Uh, and then as it cools, if it cools in the right way and it's got the right chemicals in it, it will produce an, ameth an amethyst or a diamond. So the affliction, the thlipsis, this corpse in a rock in a hard place, um, is Paul's experience. And that was Christ's experience. What is the rock in the hard place? What is it? What is the pressure? Well, it's certainly opposition from the world. It is certainly animosity that is received. It's, it's something that isn't just caused by that. It's something which takes you to the end of your tether. So now Paul writes about it. Read in verse 8 with me, if you will. We do not want to be un you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Come and die. So you see, Paul knew, and his companions, knew their weakness. They knew that they had been at the end of their tether. They knew that they were in circumstances, under pressure, facing opposition and animosity, facing violence, that they could not sort, they could not fix this themselves. So there was comfort needed. And of course, comfort abounded to them. Verse, four, verse, verse 5, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Two things. Um, the first is that in our um, British and I guess also North American um, and generally Western Christianity and evangelicalism, we tend not to prize suffering and we tend not to prize weakness. So we do have the answer, well, I'm fine. And that's supposed to be a good answer. Um, we have a British uh, aversion to talking about ourselves much because we assume that people are going to be bored and they're not actually interested. That is, we assume that when people say, how are you, they don't really want an answer. They're actually just saying, hello. <laughs> okay, so uh, those of you who haven't clocked that one yet, you know. Um. So what we have... Um, within our British evangelicalism is a sort of a Christianized, uh, spiritualized version of superficiality in our greetings and in our relationships. Now, if that's your lifelong habit, if that's your cultural milieu, then you will begin to think that yourself. You just think the culture without being aware of it in the way that goldfish aren't aware of water. So we tend not to prize suffering or weakness. But we have imbibed, I think, in our, in our evangelicalism these days, we have, we have imbibed just the sort of the success mentality of the world. That you are successful when you look strong, sound strong, act strong, and that way you can do what? 
That way you can be successful because you can exert power. You look powerful. You dress powerful. You talk powerful. You project a successful image. Now, this is not to say that we glorify failure. To say that what we tend not to do in our society is prize weakness and suffering. But Paul did. And he, he didn't just prize it. He wanted the Corinthians not just to know that that's what the Christian life was like, but to know why. That's why he goes on in verses 8 to 11 to talk about it so openly. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. Why doesn't he want them to be uninformed? So that they can say, oh, Paul, you're just such a hero. What a martyr. Is Paul, you know, clocking up martyr points? No. Because, you see, walking this Christian life, which will involve flipsis, affliction, and which will therefore involve the most abundant and wonderful comfort from God. Walking this does two things. First of all, it puts you right into the authentic community of God's people. It puts you right into the authentic community of God's people. So that you genuinely share fellowship. See, if you're superficial and false and everything's fine, you never enter authentically into the community, the fellowship, the koinonia of what it means to follow Jesus in a hostile culture. And you, you, you can never enter into that koinonia, that commonality of experiencing the God who comforts you, of being people who need God. And you'll be a loser because all you'll have is superficial fellowship. It won't be fellowship, recognizably in biblical terms, in fact. But other people will be the losers too. Because all, all they'll ever get is this person who never really opens up. This person who never really shares their heart. This person who somehow or another just never seems to go through the trials and the troubles that we all go through. This person who has you know, 2.4 golden children who love the Lord and speak Hebrew and Greek from an age of two. Who's, whose husband is perfect, whose wife glows with perfection. Who only ever seem to do well. And you know that it can't actually be like that. But they never let on. You see, Paul wants the Corinthians to know 
how it was for him and the rest of his companions in the province of Asia, that is, before they got to Corinth. He wants them to know what it was like there so that they will learn what real Christianity is like. The second reason why he wants them to know this is so that they can join in in prayer and see that their prayers actually make a difference, which was one of the lovely things that we were hearing from Max and Raquel earlier on. So when the church got together and prayed, things a long way away changed. Because the church that was praying entered the sufferings of those who were being afflicted. And so Paul talks about um, on him we have set our hope. This is the second half of verse 10 going into 11. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So you enter that genuine koinonia, that genuine fellowship, those who have the comfort of God in common because they have the afflictions in the world in common. You, you enter that fellowship, not just in conversation, but in prayer for one another. And then what happens? What happens is that God is thanked. God gets glorified. God gets honored. Um, the always successful, happy, fine, sorted Christian not only lives a myth of not really needing God to hold them up, because they can hold themselves up pretty well, thank you. But in that process, God is robbed of the glory that is due to his name. God is robbed of the thanks that come for answered prayer. God is robbed of the glory that is his when we trust him and depend upon him and not ourselves. God is robbed of the praise and the the thanksgiving and the sense of Lord you are wonderful you got me through this I couldn't have done this thing that happens through affliction God is robbed of the glory that comes to his name when previously self-absorbed rebellious sinners who are only into life for what they can get out of it are transformed by the gospel into inside-out believers who what? Who go the way of the cross. His son is glorified. His son's walk is glorified and honored. His son's cross is lifted high. Not because it's sung that it's lifted high, but because it's lived in the lives of the believers.
We have, um, we've done something with the answer to the first question of the catechism. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is... That was, that was just disastrous. That was just absolutely awful. So anyway, what some of you were whispering... Uh, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What we've done in our culture, in our, in our evangelical Western subculture, is we've reversed the whole thing. So our first question is, what is the chief end of me? And the answer is, or we, 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 sorry, we say, what is the chief end of God? That is, you know, what is God's use? Of what benefit is he to me? What is the chief end of God? And the answer is, the chief end of God is to glorify me and help me enjoy myself forever. That's our cultural and tragically so often our Christian subcultural approach to it. What is God for? God is to glorify me and help me enjoy myself forever. Now if we buy into that, and none of us do it deliberately, if we just imbibe it, from our self-preoccupied narcissistic culture, then we won't know a thing about what Paul is writing about here. It will seem alien and weird and just like that's not how it's supposed to be. Because if God's really in my life, then I'm going to be happy all the time. And I'm going to pass every exam I ever sit. And when I ask her out, she's going to say yes. And so is she, and she, and she, because I'm a narcissistic, self-preoccupied person who nobody actually wants to stay with for more than 10 minutes. You see, Christ is glorified in the lives of self-absorbed, narcissistic, I'm the center of the universe sinners who so walk with Christ because of the fruit of the gospel that they are prepared to die. And in that weakness and in the midst of that affliction receive the very comfort of the Father. And in closing, to me, for me, this is probably just sort of more personal reflection than, than hard-nosed exegesis, the key word in the whole passage is that one, it's Father. It's a Father who sees, a Father who knows, the father whose heart goes out to his children as it went out to his son. It's because he's your heavenly father that he understands and comforts you. Not God in a, in a sort of a distant, remote, a personal sense. But Father. And you know, 
where we hear that is communion coming up. When the son on the cross, was there ever a more afflicted place? Cried out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Let's pray. Father, um, we, we don't glibly ask you to teach us our weakness because we know that it hurts to learn it. But we would be real. And so we pray that you might uh, show to us our weakness. We pray that we might not duck the afflictions that come from following Jesus faithfully. We pray, Lord, that we might not swap out the cross for some kind of worldly comfort blanket. We pray that we might know your comfort. And we pray, Lord, that you would... uh, By your spirit, create such a quality of fellowship that we are real about the afflictions and therefore real as we glorify you together for your comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.